0: ...is an Odyssey original. This is X in Action Depth. I'm Chris Seaton's And I'm Charles
1: Feldman, talking about another mass shooting today in America. This one in Chesapeake, Virginia, at a Walmart. Six people killed by a shooter who then killed himself. We'll go in-depth into this latest tragedy. We're also learning a lot more about the suspected shooter at Club Q. That's, of course, in Colorado Springs. Then we'll head to Ukraine, where Russia is knocking out power again to large parts of the country, just as winter is looming there. And a new experiment may lead to the end of pointless, and aren't they all, traffic jams.
0: The COVID-19 pandemic could lead to more kids around the world getting the measles. We'll go in-depth into why kids are skipping shots. If you're dealing with a bad breakup or just can't seem to get over that, uh, that 1x, a boot camp. Yeah, a boot camp might be the answer for you. And we end the show with Rick Caruso. Yeah, you've heard of him. <laughs> the billionaire developer. Uh, will talk about his experience running for Los Angeles mayor and what he wants to do
1: now. You know, he spent almost, as you know, $100, $100 million of his own money. Yeah. And he seemingly is shrugging it off. Yeah. I just bought coffee for like four bucks and and i'm upset (laughs) yeah so i guess everything is relative everything is relative we start though with uh, mass shootings in virginia and colorado first with us is matt Demline, news director at wrva radio in richmond virginia who has been following the walmart shooting matt thanks for being with us what's the latest that you know
2: um they the Chesapeake Police Department uh just put out a rather detailed timeline of the shooting that occurred around ten fifteen last night basically uh what we've learned is that officers were on scene and in the Walmart within four minutes when they got in there, they found three people uh shot to death in the break room of the walmart that included the suspected shooter 31 year old andre bing they also found a person shot to death at, at the front of the store and then three other people later died at the hospital
0: matt are we learning any more about the other person the, the shooter in this case
2: uh walmart has confirmed that he was a uh, walmart associate that he was the overnight team leader but we do not have any details on a motive at this point officers are still investigating
1: and the community, as best you can tell, how is it reacting?
2: Um, I mean, they're in shock. The whole state is in shock. Really, Virginia has in the last uh, nine days, we've had a what, what amounted to a mass shooting involving the UVA football team up in Charlottesville. And now we have this incident. There's also been some rather gruesome local here in Richmond murders as well. It has been a very difficult week and a half.
0: Yeah, it, it sure has been, Matt. Um Talk to us a little bit about the, the reaction from the people, uh, your, your listening audience there in, in, in Virginia, just how, just how this has affected the psyche of, of people, just, people just going about their typical days when something like this happened.
2: Well, and I, and I think that the, that the, there really is a state of shock. I mean, there was a there's been a lot of outpouring of emotion from the UVA incident, which kind of affected a large number of people just because, you know, everyone either Went to UVA or was a UVA football fan or, you know, was a Virginia Tech football fan. And, and you know, but as, you know, the rivalry and everything there that's all tied in, everyone felt emotionally tied to this. And now just people in, you know, out shopping for Thanksgiving. Uh, to, to possibly face death just being in a story. It, you know, everyone's sort of walking around
0: shocked. Okay, Matt, our our thoughts are with the uh, the people of your community. Again, that's Matt Demline, news director of WRVA Radio in Richmond.
1: Well, from Virginia to another part of the country, we are now joined by Tony Keith, reporter and digital content manager for KKTV. That's the CBS affiliate in Colorado Springs. Who has the latest on the suspected Club Q shooter? There, Tony. Thank you for being with us. What more are we learning about the shooter?
3: You know, just within the past few hours, the the suspected shooter made a court appearance, and some of the big headlines uh, across the country right now. Attorneys representing the suspect um, stating that this person prefers to go by uh, non-binary. So um, that's a that's a big headline right now across the country, but. Focusing on this virtual court appearance, uh, the suspect in the background, um, you could see this person's face pretty swollen. Of course, there's reports of two good Samaritans being hailed as heroes stepping in. Um, He was hospitalized up until yesterday, moved into the jail. Um, But the the focus right now in our community, of course, is is with the victims, uh, those killed and those who were there and those injured. So uh, there is a lot of uh, national talk in regards to the suspect and the alleged background. Uh, Personally, Here at our station, we obtained arrest papers that may be tied. They're likely tied to this same suspect from June of 2021, where this person um, allegedly made a bomb threat. And at the same time, there's lots of allegations that uh, within these arrest papers, family members claimed that he wanted to be the next big mass shooter.
0: And, Tony, I understand as well uh, that the reason we're not hearing as much about his background is that the shooter, the alleged shooter in this case, actually changed his name a couple years back.
3: Yes, so we learned that from um, some of our affiliates in Texas. They reached out asking us what we knew about a Nicholas Brink. And I I was caught off guard and said, you're referring to Anderson Lee Aldrich. And they said, no, no, Nicholas Brink, the Club Q suspected shooter, and that's when I first learned about it. So our Texas affiliates did some digging down there and uh, informed us of this. We are not doing a lot of, a ton of digging into the suspect's background right now. Uh, it, it's sad to say, in Colorado, we we've got almost a, a recipe to, to cover mass shootings because they, they do happen. Uh, you know, it, just one is more freak You know, more than anybody would want. But uh, with within my career. Um, there is sort of a when this happens, we want to get information out to the public immediately because people, whether they were there or in the area of the shooting, they want to know what's going on. So, uh, you know, step one is gather the facts, get them out to the masses. Step two is is put the focus on the victims. Um, And that's been honestly my my big focus for the past few days. Even though the suspect made a, a court appearance virtually, Today, the, the suspect remains with the victims and the heroes of this incident.
0: Okay, Tony, uh, just like uh, with our colleagues in Richmond, Virginia, uh, you and in, in there in, in Colorado, our thoughts uh, are with you as well. That's Tony Keith, reporter, digital content manager with KKTV, the CBS affiliate in Colorado Springs.
1: I think all of us have had this experience if we drive, especially on the freeways here in L.A. Chris, you probably have. You're in, mm-hmm. Maybe you're, you're on the... 405, and provided you're actually moving, (laughs) and there's no traffic. But all of a sudden, you know, it kind of crawls to a a stop, or Mm -hmm. almost a stop, and then you put your brakes on, and everybody behind you. And then you kind of look, because it magically seems to free up. Like, what happened? What happened? There's no accident, nothing, and you (laughs) you think, why did this happen? Well, there's a term for that. It's actually called a phantom uh, traffic jam, I believe. And there's a possible solution for it. With us is William Barber, who is a research scientist at the Institute for Software Integrated Systems. That's at Vanderbilt University. He worked on this experiment. William, thanks for being with us. So very briefly, first of all, am I right? It's a phantom traffic jam. What? What is that?
4: That's exactly right. Uh, phantom traffic jams are caused by Uh, The very nature of how humans drive Uh, in certain traffic regimes when demand meets a certain level, uh, one person putting on their brakes uh, can cause that ripple effect, as you were describing, and lead to a, a stop and go wave that seemingly has no cause. So, yeah, so
0: as you mentioned, one person, we often talk, and, you know, Tom Tran and Jennifer York talk about it all the time. Brian Douglas as well in our traffic center. It takes one looky-loo when there's an accident. But I take it from your research, it's one looky-loo driver just glancing out at maybe the
4: Getty Center or whatever they, they might see on the on the 405. That's, that's right. Uh, we, through uh, some of the traffic instrumentation that we have deployed here in Nashville, Tennessee, Uh, We're actually getting a better look than we ever have before at these phantom traffic jams. Uh, And we see, in fact, dozens of them uh, occurring every single day. Uh, And that's leading to inefficiencies in our traffic stream uh, from a capacity and a fuel efficiency standpoint. Okay, so we accept the
1: premise that we're all pretty bad drivers, uh, but there's a potential solution. Speak for yourself, by the way. But there's a solution, maybe,
4: right? we hope so uh, our research has been focused on uh, modifying uh, low level autonomy features that are present on tens of thousands of vehicles out on the road today uh, that's your adaptive cruise control technologies uh, our experiment modified these algorithms that are running on your cars uh, with the intent of uh, smoothing out some of those phantom traffic jams uh, this technology uh, you know exists on our on our vehicle fleet and uh, by you know slight modification could actually uh, improve the fuel efficiency and and flow of traffic
0: did, did your survey look at like nationwide which areas
4: were worse than others or was this basically just focused on on your area this so far is is a proof of concept experiment uh, we deployed 100 uh, vehicles into the freeway uh, traffic flow with this uh, modified technology with the hope of uh, demonstrating a, a reduction in these phantom traffic jams. Uh, those vehicles uh, were driven by human drivers. You know, they were fully in control, uh, and the, the adaptive cruise control technologies uh, with our algorithms were modifying the speed of the vehicle. Uh, and so this experiment, we hope, is the beginning of a, a sort of refocus of these technologies to improve traffic flow uh, for everyone across the country, regardless of where you live.
1: So to be clear now, we're not talking about people having to, to put up $100,000 and buy themselves a Tesla. We're talking about fairly new model cars that are already on the market. I have that in my car, in fact, that, that you can set the, uh, the speed and the distance and it will slow the car down if it gets too close to the car in front. And then I would speed back up to a uh, pre-selected speed. That's what we're talking about, right?
4: That's correct. And, you know, the algorithms that we're that we're modifying these vehicles with are very similar to something we've probably all done in traffic. Uh, when you see brake lights come on ahead of you, you let off the accelerator. Or if you see a red light up ahead, uh, there's no sense in rushing up to, to a stop. You sort of uh, let your foot off the gas and try to smooth out uh, that transition in speed. Um, and so that's that's what we're trying to accomplish with these vehicles and with that technology, which, as you say, is is deployed on a, a very massive number of vehicles. Uh, it, and by modern standards, it, it,
0: is your research being passed on to car makers and or even federal, state, civic uh, uh, leaders? Uh, are they reviewing it?
4: We we've been working with uh, with major automakers in the U.S. Uh, this experiment uh, was uh, was done in, in with. Uh, contact and input by nissan toyota and general motors uh, and these algorithms you know could make their way onto production vehicles and and uh, we're we're hoping to disseminate this research in a way that uh that makes that happen
1: for people who already have these cars many people do as as we've pointed out could this uh modification of the algorithm be done fairly easily and cheaply or are we really talking about doing it for new cars from the factory
4: that's a great question and i would have to uh to direct that to to our friends in the automotive industry uh who know this area better than i do but uh from a software standpoint you know this is uh, this would be a modification of really the the way in which your car interprets data and uh, and processes back out a, a speed for your vehicle to go to uh, you know to try to in try to achieve so uh, this is really a, a software solution uh, and not a not an expensive one at that
0: William, thank you. William Barber, a research scientist at Vanderbilt University, he worked on this experiment.
1: And, of course, a lot of times the car in front of you, it it might be slowing down because the driver is looking at an accident or I think you mentioned the museum. But unfortunately, all too Mm -hmm. often, it's because they're looking at their phone. Yeah. And, yeah. and they're texting or they're doing something else on their phone, and so they don't realize that their car is slowing down. Now you're behind that car, so you put on your brakes and, mm-hmm. and you then, have that chain reaction. Exactly,
0: exactly. Where I notice it a lot is driving on city streets where all of a sudden you're maybe at a red light and it turns green and you notice the car in front of you is just sitting there. Yes. Sitting there and you know, well, they're on their They're on their phone. Yeah, Right now, though, Russia has launched more attacks on infrastructure in Ukraine, leading to power outages across large parts of the country. Even neighboring Moldova has been impacted by that. This uh, comes, of course, as winter cold is settling into the region. Journalist Phil Itner is uh, with us again from Kiev. Phil, thanks for for joining us uh, again on In-Depth. First of all, how serious, how concerned are people, are our government officials with this power issue, with the heart of winter just ahead?
5: Well, I mean, it's something to be taken very seriously. uh Winters are harsh here uh but in a lot of ways, I mean, this is how people have come to live in Ukraine. They accommodate and prepare for situations like this um, you know, I have candles because my heating is low, and so you know I don't want to put uh pressure on the electrical grid so I, I have my candles, which provide both lighting and heat uh it's It's frustrating right now because much of Kiev is without water. that's kind of a new development uh, but I have pallets of bottled water that I bought you know uh, weeks ago in preparation for this so it is uh it's it's funny you know as a as a Californian I think an audience will recognize one one of the kind of strange things about things is Um, You know, when we get an earthquake, we if it's below, you know, what, a three point two, let's say, uh, most of us just kind of shake it off. But if you're from Oklahoma and you're visiting, uh, it's quite uh, it's quite an experience. We just kind of this is how we live now. This is how we live. And um, we're going to make it through. But it's going to be difficult.
1: Now, of course, Vladimir Putin over in Russia, he's hoping, obviously, as part of this tactic, uh, by going after the power grid to make Ukrainians suffer through a brutal winter. And his hope, obviously, is it will uh, greatly impact the resolve of the Ukrainian people. I gather you don't think that is going to happen.
5: Not at all. It's a massive miscalculation on Vladimir Putin's part. Not only has he not, uh, you know, but by threatening uh, airstrikes, um to, to the general public or to the infrastructure of the country uh initiated kind of a um what would be called a kind of a, a blitz uh, uh resistance uh, you know that the british people went through in the second world war where they banded together despite the difficulties of being bombed on an almost daily basis that's kind of the attitude here it's the feeling that that we will not bow to this kind of situation look i was in a i was in a a, a bar uh Earlier this week, it was a heavy snowfall, and I, I stepped out of the street to kind of get warm for a moment and uh, uh, ordered myself a beer and sat down for a moment to kind of check my, my emails and whatnot, and uh, the power went out, and nobody batted an eye. The candles came out. People kept talking. Um, we just kind of went about our, our day. It, it, you know Shops will shut down, and they will lose power, so uh you have to wait until hours restored to go back and and do your shopping and sometimes that's even for essentials but we prepare for this and we stockpile things and get things ready and it's just part of living at this point and um it it's not having the uh the effect, I think, that maybe the Russians wanted.
0: Phil, uh, talking now about the the war, the battle itself. I understand a lot of uh, good use has been made when it comes to Ukraine forces. When it comes to drone technology, yeah,
5: there's a there's a lot being made of of the the capabilities of what drones can do, and that the proliferation of drones, and almost every single unit, almost even to the point where we're getting reports that like. Even almost every soldier, and that's an exaggeration, but small units, small numbers of people uh, have drones and are using them for uh, forward observation, which is to call in artillery, or even to, in a firefight, know the fighting the enemy positions of of fighters. Uh, Reconnaissance has become a lot more easy with the proliferation of of drones, and uh, that is changing the, the landscape at the face of uh, land warfare, and I'm sure that there will be a lot of people taking consideration of that going forward, and I think a lot of military doctrine is going to change because everybody has eyes in the skies now.
0: Okay. Phil, stay safe. Thank you again. That's journalist Phil Itner uh, joining us from Kyiv.
1: You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Chris Seaton's. I'm Charles Feldman.
0: Another downside of the COVID-19 pandemic, and there have been many, is more and more children across the world are susceptible to getting the measles. The World Health Organization and the CDC say nearly 40 million children missed a vaccine dose last year.
1: Now, measles, of course, is uh, among the most contagious diseases in the world. There were about 9 million infections last year in 128 thousand deaths. That's across the world. With us now is Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist, clinical professor of preventative medicine over at USC Keck School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Explain uh, to our listeners this connection between the pandemic, seeming connection anyway, between the pandemic and so many children not getting vaccinated for measles.
6: The real problem globally due to the pandemic has been the the closure and the um, inadequate implementation of routine vaccination programs. So due to pandemic policies in many countries, um, you know, staff were not uh, able to go to work and uh, people were told to stay home and avoided what, what they may have seen as preventive care visits. So globally, it's much more related to a disruption of services than any kind of hesitancy or anti-vax sentiment.
0: Talk to us about just how dangerous it is if a child gets the measles.
6: Sure. Well, measles historically was a very serious uh, infection. Measles causes pneumonia, it can cause uh, breathing failure and, and, and death. It can also cause infection of the of the brain so it was a tremendous uh victory when we had a safe and effective uh, vaccine and we we're on the verge of eliminating uh measles and measles deaths in many parts of the world but the, these di- disruptions in our vaccination programs have made that no longer a a reality and and young children who, who get measles uh, we, we, without access to good medical care are susceptible to dying and can die from measles.
1: You mentioned that globally, a lot of kids not having been inoculated for measles has less to do with anti-vaxxers and more to do with distribution issues, that sort of thing, because of the pandemic. But why do I suspect that in this country, the equation might be somewhat different, that perhaps there's more of an element of anti-vaxxers at play here? Am I right?
6: Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a big concern. I mean, in in California, uh, in 2017, about 95% of children were vaccinated against measles. That went up um, with a new law that was passed in uh, California in 2016 that uh, reduced a personal belief exemption. So you can only be exempted from medical uh, reasons. Um, However, you know, we do see um, increased hesitancy, uh, particularly for child vaccines. And also, you know, the, the kind of enforcement of childhood vaccines is at the kindergarten and school level. So we require measles for school entry and schools are not well-capacitated really to monitor and to measure and report that our health departments continue to struggle in terms of measuring or reporting vaccination rates. And as any parent knows to get your vaccine records is very difficult. So we really need a whole new approach to vaccine monitoring and vaccination uh, statistics
0: I think there's a lot of people we you know we know we have to get the COVID vaccine shot we know we need the flu shot but I I don't know I'm amongst many who my goodness there's an awful lot of shots going into my arm I'll throw this out there could there be a concern by some parents who may have given their kids full shot you know the the, the COVID shots the boosters the flu vaccines who are simply worried about how many shots they're putting in their kids arms
6: Well, I think people need to remember that uh, the immunity produced from vaccination is 100% natural and is much safer to develop that natural immunity from vaccination than getting infected. So we are exposed to, you know, numerous viruses, bacteria, parasites um, on an ongoing regular basis. Our bodies develop immunity to those. But, you know, uh, some do make us sick and some are particularly dangerous. It's much safer to have natural immunity after vaccination than after infection.
1: You know, to pick up on what Chris just said, does it surprise you as a physician that that so many parents, when it comes to their kids, uh, they seem to be perhaps overly concerned about how many inoculations they're putting into the arms of their kids, but not so much how much food?
6: Well, I think, you know, there, you know, there's parents kind of way different things in terms of, you know, risk benefits and, you know, the absence of seeing a lot of vaccine preventable diseases in the community due to the overwhelming success of, uh, you know, vaccination. You don't hear about children in your own community dying from polio or measles or mumps, rubella, diphtheria tetanus, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So people say, okay, well, that's not a big concern. So, you know, um, I'm not going to vaccinate my my child, but people just need to look at, you know, history and even go to a place like Ohio right now, where they've had a measles outbreak uh, with dozens of children impacted.
0: Dr. Klausner, thank you again. That's Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, uh, USC Keck School of Medicine.
1: Well, you know, most of us, all of us experienced heartache due to a breakup, whether we initiated it or our partner did, breakups can, can really be hard on people as they struggle to cope with the end of a relationship.
0: Well, that said, if you have anywhere from 3500 to, say, $4,000 saved up, you can head to a retreat. It's up in Northern California to deal with your breakup. Yes, there's an actual breakup retreat. You heard that right. It's called Renew Breakup Boot Camp with us to explain how it all started and what goes on there is its founder, Amy Chan. Amy, thank you for joining us. First of all, how did you come up with the idea of starting this, this boot camp for breakups?
7: Yeah. So I went through a really brutal breakup. I thought that my whole future was set with this guy. And one day that relationship fell apart uh, because he cheated on me with a former coworker. And I fell apart and I tried everything I could to heal and I tried yoga retreats, but I found that when I got home, I was just procrastinating my pain. It didn't address the type of grief I was dealing with when it came to heartbreak. And so when I healed from that, I thought I wanted to create the thing that didn't uh, exist for me. And that's how breakup bootcamp was born.
1: Okay. So now what exactly takes place at a breakup bootcamp?
7: So it's a four-day retreat, and the programming is intense. Uh, it starts at 9 a.m., it ends at 9 p.m. at night, and we bring in a team of 10 experts from psychologists, behavioral scientists, sex therapists, anxiety coaches, and Back-to-back sessions, people are working on not just grieving the pain of their last relationship, but really looking at what are their subconscious patterns that are causing the same emotional experiences to repeat, and they learn how to change these.
0: Did I hear Charles Wright in promoting this segment earlier that uh, a dominatrix plays a role in this as well?
7: There is a dominatrix. She has a PhD from Berkeley, and she specifically teaches on the psychology of power dynamics because most of the people who come, even though they're powerful in their careers or high achievers, somewhere along the way in their relationships, they become very disempowered. So we really look at the science and psychology behind why this is.
1: So this is open to, I, I presume, men and women?
7: Yes, so it used to only be open to women, and we just had our first a co-ed non-binary retreat, okay. and it went so well that from now on, uh, it's going to be open to everyone.
1: And do they do do they cohabit or or cohabitate or what what do they do? I mean, do they go there and they stay in a, a log cabin? What what? I'm, I'm trying to get a picture of what actually <laughs> happens there. <laughs>
7: Yeah. So they all have individual cabins and there's shared accommodations or private accommodations. But, yeah, it's separate.
0: Well, and I can't help but wonder. uh, So men and women take part in this. Uh, They're in group therapy together, I take it. Right. Yes. Uh, are, Are there any love connections, for lack of a better term, that come out of boot camp?
7: Well, let's be honest. Uh, I did notice I picked up some some energy between two people. I don't think anything happened, but we do tell everyone in the beginning a few ground rules. Number one, no bashing the ex. Number two, no unsolicited advice. And number three, please try not to trauma bond. And, and how
0: Trauma do you, bond. Okay. <laughs>
1: how do you measure success? How do you know that it's working?
7: Yeah. So people in the beginning, when they first come in, they do an intake of how they're doing and everyone is pre-screened. So we don't accept everyone to come because sometimes it's just not the right timing. And then at the end of the retreat, they also do another screening process to do an intake um, and they fill out everything from anxiety levels to optimism of the future. And we could see uh, the difference within just a couple of days.
0: Okay, maybe you mentioned this before, but I guess I was taken by the trauma bonding and the the dominatrix. But how long does how long does this last? Is it a week long course or a weekend or what?
7: It's four full days, and the programming is from nine am till nine pm.
0: I, I guess the thing that I would be
1: thinking about is like, what's the food like?
7: Yeah, we, so we bring in an on-site chef and nutritionist. Uh, so all of the meals are 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 made on site by a culinary team, and it's delicious. Like we're talking salmon, steaks, salads. Um, we've got it all. It's,
1: it's almost worth the breaking breaking up. Where do we sign yeah. up? Well, I'm I'm curious, Amy. What 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 did you do uh, professionally before this?
7: Yeah. So I did two things. I was climbing the corporate ladder in marketing. I was a chief marketing officer of a company called Spin. There were ping pong clubs across the country. And I was a relationship columnist for about 15 years before I started this company.
0: Interesting. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Again, that's uh, Amy Chan, founder of the Renew Breakup Bootcamp. Go figure. You know, the food actually
1: sounds, sounds pretty good. good. So yeah. Maybe you can go there without breaking <laughs> up and just have the food. Maybe. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Chris Edens, I'm Charles Felton.
0: L.A. Mayor's race, it's now over in the history books. Karen Bass will be taking over at City Hall next month, but her opponent won't be vanishing or riding off into the sunset.
1: Yeah, you no, know, far from it. Rick Caruso still has big plans, he says, for what he wants to accomplish in Los Angeles. Mr. Caruso is here with us now to talk about his future, and uh, now that the election is wrapped up, uh, what he intends to to do. Rick, thanks for being with us.
8: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Happy Thanksgiving.
1: Same to you and your and your you. family. So I, I got to start off be, because I got to ask you this. So the other day I was at a local supermarket. I went to buy a, a sandwich. It was a supermarket that normally charged like seven ninety nine for a sandwich. It, they've raised it to ten bucks, and I'm still upset that it was ten dollars. You, on the other hand, you've gone through, if all the reporting is right, roughly a hundred million dollars of mostly your own money. Didn't get the job you wanted. You don't seem to be that upset. Are you hiding it, well?
8: (laughs) You know, listen, my disappointment revolves around I was eager to get in office and start making some changes very quickly. Um, You know, getting the homeless off the streets and giving them the care they need and cutting down crime and making neighborhoods safer. So my disappointment is that I'm not going to be able to do that you know from the mayor's office and listen the amount of money i spent really is not the issue at all because i had to invest to get my message out i you know i haven't been in politics for 20 years uh, and not a national figure so uh, it was a lot of money it was something i wanted to do because i care greatly about the city and the city's in trouble we all know it and uh you know we all want to support um, everybody who's going to be on the new council and and Karen in the mayor's office and hopefully they make some changes quickly it was really a, people are expected
0: yeah it was really a hard fought race between you and Karen Bass you didn't win all in all was it worth the money and, and all the hard work and we know you you know you really put your heart and soul into this campaign as well was it all worth it
8: oh god yes it, it was absolutely worth it first of all I'm always in 100% with anything that I do. And, you know, when I decided to run for mayor, I'm going to give it my all because I wasn't looking for a job. Um, I was on a mission to help people that have felt unheard and disenfranchised from the system. And uh, we accomplished that, you know, enormous amount of support. Remember, I started with 5% um, early on. Karen started with about 32, 35% and ran against, you know, four other career politicians. But we framed the issues and got our messages out there. And that's what I'm very proud of. And put together policies and programs that will solve them. And I really do hope that our mayor-elect, uh, you know, takes whatever she wants from our programs and starts implementing it. But absolutely it was worth it. And uh, we gave people a lot of hope and pride and really showed that the city could be in a much better place uh, with some good decision-making and some good leadership. Rick, uh, and, other, other, uh, other, I don't think that's going away. Uh,
1: other than when you spoke with, uh, uh, with Mayor-elect Bass uh, on the night, uh, election night, or, the, or the, actually the night when, when you ended up conceding to her, have you had any further conversations with her more recently uh, or have discussed any kind of role you might have?
8: No, we haven't spoken since a couple of days after the election.
0: How how would you describe your relationship with Karen Bass moving forward?
8: Well, I, I'm gonna support and and you know, anybody who's in a leadership position that can change the direction of the city. And um I'm gonna be supportive, of course. We got so much at risk here. And like we talked about, we got people dying in the streets. And neighborhoods that are very unsafe. So uh, I'm going to be very supportive. I've known Karen for a long time, um, and I wish her all the best.
1: Have you reached out to her since again that concession uh, phone call, or has she made any attempt to reach out to you?
8: No, we haven't spoken to each other. Does that surprise?
1: Does that surprise you?
8: Um, No, I don't think, you know, listen, she's got her work to do, and she's got to put an administration together and do what she's got to do, and she's, I'm sure, very busy, and I'm busy. I'm actually back up the streets, and I'm going around the city and thanking the people that were so supportive. Uh, Today, me and my family, my wife, Tina, and the kids, we're in South L.A. and, you know, handing out turkey dinners uh, for an organization that's a tremendous organization down in South L.A., Justice for murdered children. And uh, we have 300 families picking up Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, you know, I'm going to continue to be involved in this community and stay very active.
1: During the the campaign, uh, as I'm sure you remember, one of the criticisms that were leveled at you was that if you cared that much about uh, the homeless problem, why didn't you build more affordable housing? And and your answer usually was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but along the lines of that wasn't really your Your business, you were in the business of of building uh, things like The Grove, for example. But I'm wondering now that you've gone through this campaign to be mayor and have touched so many lives that perhaps before you didn't have an opportunity to to, uh, touch, if you might refocus some of your business efforts more toward building affordable housing in the city.
8: Well, Charles, I may. Um, I'm looking at a lot of different options and how I can do that. And, um, you know, it was never my core business, and it's like all of us. We have core businesses, and I've always been a believer you stick with what you know, and and that's how you do well and be effective. But what I would think about doing is maybe teaming up with somebody that knows how to build affordable housing, uh, is already in the business, or maybe bringing a team on. Uh, and doing it ourselves. So we're looking at that as an option. I'm also going to be meeting with all the care providers down in and around Skid Row and see how I can be more helpful to them from a private sector side. Um, so I'm looking at a whole bunch of different options. But, yeah, I'm going to stay very engaged in the city.
0: Another big issue during the campaign in, in this city is is crime. What can and still be done to battle that, and how might you be able to assist uh, the, the new mayor?
8: You know, that really comes down from the mayor's office. Uh, same, you know, from the homeless situation, because the mayor's got authorities that no private citizen has. But I'm very worried about crime continuing to, to rise. And uh, I don't think I never agreed with Darren's uh, plan on this. I hope she rethinks it. I hope she gets a lot of good advice uh, now that she's going to be in office. But we've got to get more officers on the street and we've got to have more black and whites around and we got to have a stronger community uh, policing program. Um I was like I said just down in South LA and you know the murder rate continues to rise, the gang violence continues to rise and it's all around the city. It's a it's got to be dealt with very quickly.
1: I'm curious, Rick, there are a number of events, uh, and you've talked about this uh, throughout the campaign, in your own life that had profound uh, impact on you. Uh, and, and everybody, I think, has those experiences. I'm wondering how this run for mayor uh, of the city of Los Angeles and all, as I've said, all the people that you've now uh, touched and who have touched you in the course of that, how do you think it's changed you, if it has?
8: Well, it's changed me from the standpoint that it was an experience of a lifetime and going through it with my wife and my four children um, was just an incredible experience because we were with people, dear, hardworking, very modest people in neighborhoods throughout this city um, that, like I said, felt very disenfranchised and embraced and were in their homes. And we gave them hope and they gave us hope. And it made me, as my son Gregory said in that commercial that was cut, um, fall in love even more with the city of Los Angeles. I, I am such a believer in the greatness of the city, even more so now. But it really, the greatness is happening in the hardworking areas of this town, the modest areas where people really need help. Uh, they want to be safe. They're willing to work hard, and they do. But they're worried about crime, and they're worried about the education of their kids. But you just see the dearness throughout this city in these communities. And, it, frankly, you ask me if I have any regrets or uh, the spending of the money. None at all, uh, because it even motivates me more to find ways to support them and be with them. And I'm not going to forget that, and I'm going to stay involved as I was the other day back out on Boyle Heights again. Well let
0: me let me and, ask um, you let me ask you this then. Is there anything if you could change anything about the campaign, would you?
8: You know, I think you always look back. I've never been a candidate before, so everything was a rapid learning experience. I had some really great people helping me out. But um I don't think so. You know, I was running against a system and uh that was very apparent very quickly. And, you know, you got to remember, brand-new candidate, I had a president fly out, I had a former president get involved, I had a vice president come out twice. Uh, This was my my own party. Uh, I had a former vice president, I had a senator come out. I mean, that's never happened in a local election. And so, you know, this was all about somebody wanting to do good and be an outsider to come in and... And boy that the old guard system was obviously very threatened by that. Very
1: quick question too. Everybody took notice. We're gonna run out of time. So very quick question, Rick. Are you going to stay yeah. a Democrat?
8: Of course. A Democrat, I'm gonna get very involved and I'm gonna make the tent bigger and make people feel welcome.
0: And could we and see you run again? Should be doing? Could we see you at any point run again?
8: I don't know. You know, it's really early on. I never thought I would even think about running again, but Oh, you know, oh, wait,
1: wait, 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 wait!
0: hold on a second, because we're running
1: out of time. But that's interesting, Rick, because you said, in fact, on this very show I in the so. past, yeah. I asked you that question, and you said if you lost, you would not run again. Now you, you now you're saying, well, maybe.
0: Could the door but, still be
1: open?
8: That, you know what I just said? I don't know. I just said it so early <laughs> on. But i got to admit, i got to admit something. Yeah. I fell in love with being around this city and seeing people and campaigning. It energized me. I loved every minute of it. And uh, so all I can say was a great experience, and I love being on your guys' show. And uh, I I hope you have me back on again, and I hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving and a great holiday. And God bless everybody in L.A.
0: We'd love to have you back. Uh, Rick, thank you, and happy Thanksgiving to you as well.
8: Thanks a lot, guys. Take
1: care. And again, we have reached out, of course, to Mayor-elect Karen Bast. Uh, We've invited her on In-Depth. We haven't uh, heard uh, back as yet. Uh, uh, Editorial note, very quickly. uh, KNX In-Depth, we will be uh, returning to our original one-hour format. That starts on Monday. We will start at the same time, 1 o'clock wrap up at 2, but we will still bring you the deep insight and analysis into the biggest news stories that we all
0: care about. And that will do it for today's edition of KNX In-Depth. For Charles Feldman, I'm Chris Sedens Happy Thanksgiving. We're back again Monday.